0: Support for WFIU News comes from Bunger and Robertson Attorneys at Law, celebrating 75 years, assisting with late-life legal issues, including estate planning, elder law, and probate. Information at lawbr.com. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, Security Solutions, and Voice in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, empowering a community and government partners by bringing together nonprofits, businesses, and philanthropists on initiatives to gain access to health care resources. Learn more at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, Offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co host, Sarah Whitmire. Today we're going to have our spring gardening show. We're talking with experts about the best best ways to start and maintain your gardens, and we're going to try to answer all your questions. We have uh, two guests in the studio with us. Edward Ullman is the Purdue Extension Monroe County Extension Educator for Agriculture and Natural Resources and, and the advisor of the Monroe County Master Gardeners Association. And Dorothy Cole-Kaiser is a certified Master Gardener with the Monroe County Master Gardeners Association. We're having some uh, phone difficulties today, but you can call us. We just can't put you on the air. We'll be able to take your questions if you call us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free 877-285-9348. We have a producer who will take your questions and and forward them to us uh, you also can send your questions directly to news at Indiana public and you can follow us on Twitter now X at noon edition you can send us your questions there so thanks for being here the gardening show uh, is always a hit I'm sorry we can't take a bunch of phone calls but we can we can take them we just can't get all those voices on the air uh, I want to I, I I told Edward and Dorothy I was going to start by just asking about the weather because the weather has been so crazy lately. Does that ha- is that having any impact on um, the gardening situation?
2: Well, I think the first thing is that you feel like you need to get out and start, start digging in the dirt. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we know it's way too early to do, that, to do that because the temperature of the soil has to be a certain temperature to mm-hmm. start actually doing anything. Mm-hmm. And Ed was just talking about bud break.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So with uh, with that first warming spell, we've got you know I was out y- yesterday, and we're already starting to see some of our invasives, of course, uh, starting to green up, and then some of our early flowering or our early budding trees are starting to bud break, and and so it's about two weeks, running two, almost three weeks earlier than than usual. Um, so you know, but but we're not out of clear in terms of cold, so. You know, definitely not time yet to be out working in the garden or turning that up. You know, you could do some soil prep and stuff, but uh, definitely don't be planting too much. Um, But uh, yeah, it's just when when, when's your forecast for people getting out?
2: People getting out. You need to to start planning. I was looking at the uh, the zone maps. Uh, Indiana just changed their zone maps recently, Mm -hmm. and uh, most of Monroe County is actually it's split between Zone A and five A and five B. Is that correct? No, 6A, 6A, and, 6A, 6A and 6B. And most of Monroe County is a 6B. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that means that our last frost date, uh, which is what you usually plan on for planting outside, is the end of April ish. Mm-hmm. It's always ish. <laughs> yeah.
3: Okay,
1: so we're a little early
3: for our. I guess people can get ready. But. So, I mean, remember that uh, the what. Uh, what dictates to us that, hey, we can go outside and be outside in a t shirt and be excited about playing in the yard or playing in the yard is or you know working in the yard is the air temperature, but that's not necessarily the soil temperature, and so you still have frost in the ground, you still your soil temperatures your seed your what's gonna allow you for seed germination root development and stuff is still going to be too cold so and that's why we're getting in these in these ebbs and flows of temperature change, you know from we were talking about how. Mm-hmm. Tuesday, we all went to work in a light sweatshirt, but then turned around on Thursday, we went to work with a heavy jacket on. And uh, the difference is there. And so, you know, that's not changing the soil temperature much, having two or three days where we're hitting into the 60s or even low 70s, we're not getting that effect. But um, waiting until we get into that prolonged warming that is ch- having the effect on the soil temperature. And that's where, you know, Dorothy's comments about waiting until... You know those March or uh, those April dates. You know mid to late April is 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 more ideal. Um, you have a lot less chance of losing what you've your investment, whether it's time investment or money investment in your seeds and and, and plants. Okay.
4: You said bud break uh, is a couple weeks early. So is what's that going to mean, or is it going to mean anything?
3: Um. So it kind of depends on whether you're. So for like the invasive standpoint, um, you know, our invasives are breaking early. So, you know, that's gonna give us a little bit of um, more time here early on to be treating invasives and tackling invasives. Um, so that's always exciting and, um, you know, always encourage people to be thinking about that, treating invasives. But um, for some of our flowering trees and especially, you know, all across the built environment and the landscaping, you see so many people planting Um, flowering trees and flowering shrubs and stuff, sometimes maybe a little bit further north than that plant occurs natively or should be planted. Um, So some of our like flowering dogwoods and magnolias, crepe myrtles, those things, um, if they start developing bud and breaking bud, where that bud is starting to elongate and open up. um, And then we have that Following are followed by a frost. You're going to lose a lot of your bud or a lot of your flower, and you're not going to have the big, showy bloom that you would otherwise ideally have. Um, and then for some of your fruiting trees and fruiting bodies, shrubs, vines, whatever, um, same thing. That, that bud is going to get frost nipped off and then you're going to be relying on a fruit structure to come out of the secondary buds. So you're not going to have the um, volume that you would otherwise... It now that's also depending that we have a secondary frost that comes after these buds do start to break, um, which I'm not, I can't forecast that, nobody yeah. can, but there is a, a bit of an assumption that can be made. <laughs> um, you know, we at the end of the day, we do live in Indiana, and it's not unheard of, <laughs> of having a, a light snow flurry in April, so
4: but a light snow, I mean, I've seen it in years past where we've mm-hmm. had like for Scythia, blooms totally covered in snow, but the next day they're fine. Yeah. So th- that to me is always sort of the weird sticking point. It's like w- when it, when does it keep things from flowering, and when is it? So so fine?
3: sometimes that snow actually can can help because it'll almost uh, act as a blanket or as a as a jacket, as a insulator from the frost. So it's when we start getting those freezing rains or just hard f- freezing temperatures that uh, that you start having worse problems to those blooms and those buds you know sometimes that snow flurry with the cold temps can be not as detrimental so
1: sometimes i don't really know the knowledge base of all of our audience out there so i just wanted to go back to the whole idea of invasives and why are in, why what are invasives what are some of the, the go ahead yeah what, are, <laughs> what what are some of the most prevalent invasives that you see around here And what should people do about
3: them? Oh, man, I feel like we could spend two, three hours just on (laughs) invasives. We have done
4: shows just on invasives. (laughs) But
3: uh, no, so around um, Bloomington, some of our most common invasives, um, you're going to be your like bush honeysuckle, autumn olive. um, Oh, Let's see. Multiflora rose is super common. um, And then the biggest one that I feel like everybody's talking is in the news all over is calorie pear. Um, you know, and those are invasive trees, shrubs, usually coming from uh, most commonly Asia because it's a similar climate, but their climate runs a little bit longer, two weeks earlier in the spring, two weeks later in the fall. Um, but uh, they've been introduced at some point, and uh, they do really good at out our natives. So that's kind of the, mm-hmm. the brief uh, summary on, on what invasives are. So why, why is that bad? because they're out competing <laughs> our data. <Okay. laughs> right. can but, uh, kill them? but yeah, well they they uh most of them can be pretty shade tolerant, but uh the biggest thing is uh that by getting a two week head start in the spring, like I mentioned there's the first things are going to be greening up right now and I I'm seeing it kind of across the board, but getting that head start um you know, you're you're basically giving that uh 400 meter runner a 200-meter head start, he's going to win no matter what, you know. And so, by having that head start, gives them a big jump. But also, they are more shade tolerant usually, and they can usually, um, most of the ones we have, can tolerate more eroded, rougher soils. And um, they're very seed heavy. They can produce a lot of seeds. So. I think
2: one of the things that isn't very ad- addressed very much about invasives is the uh, insect populations, the native insect populations. Um, don't do well with the invasive species. They need the the native uh, plants in order to to survive and thrive. Mm. And they're the ones that pollinate
4: everything for us. It's interesting.
1: So, Dorothy, I'm going to ask you this question first. It's a question from Chris. He sent it in to through Nathan, our producer. I know nothing about gardening. <laughs> Are there certain products that they that would be recommended that you, our panelists recommend that I buy or not buy when first getting started?
2: Certain products. Well, it, it depends on what his, uh, his well, passion might be, that, and right. that would dictate what he would be interested in buying. So
1: if, uh, if, if he's really interested in like um, some decorative, some flowers?
2: Some, some annual flowers. So the easiest thing if you're starting to, to grow for the first time is to look for the, the things that do that you see oftentimes on the shelves, like marigolds, oh, they're so easy. Zinnias, mm-hmm. they're easy too. You know, the simple things, cosmos, mm-hmm. anything like that. Um, so the more common you see them in the store the they're, they're there for a reason because they're very easy to grow I see. okay so that would be you know what's his interest mm-hmm. and then go with what what seems to be the easiest What if grow. he's interested
1: in vegetables?
2: Well then in vegetables there are some very simple vegetables that are e- really easy to grow and if you don't really care what you grow um, to get just to get a good uh, good growth and say hey I grew this I'm like, Radishes. Oh my gosh, they're so easy. You throw, the, throw the seed down on the ground and poof, there they are. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of really simple, easy stuff. Just my big thing is, if, if you're interested, just try it. It mm-hmm. doesn't grow. Eh, what's that, $1.50 a packet of seeds? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not mm-hmm. a big, big waste of money. That's just, you know, entertainment mm-hmm. and, and experience and just get in there and dig it away.
4: What about preparing your soil, if that's the place where we started?
2: Um, well, uh, time of year, um, mm-hmm. don't go too early. Um, around here, there's a lot of clay, and I think if you get in there too early and you start messing with the clay, you turn it into brick. Mm-hmm. Basically, you work the clay mm-hmm. when it's too too wet and it just dries out and it's just a big mm-hmm. pot of brick. So you have to pay attention to the moisture level and the, and what is in there. Amendments, mm-hmm. amendments, always yeah. amendments.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Amendments, what do you
2: Well. Um, what would you recommend Deborah? So
3: th- you know amendments would be anything that you're adding to the soil to um, make it more productive. Um, so around here we have a couple different uh, retailers that sell compost material or fertilizers, things like that. Um, it's kind of um, dependent on where you're growing to you know if you're uh, if you're trying to put in a garden in your yard on you know open soil, that's gonna be a little more um, questionable about how much amendment you can add, because of not necessarily just financially, but the amount of area you can work. Or when you're adding in amendments to a pot that's you know six foot by six foot long by three foot long and only about two feet deep, you know you you're, you can work that a lot easier and you can stir that in a lot more. But uh, but yeah, amendments are just what you're adding to the soil to make it more fertile, more productive. So, how
4: do you figure out? Uh, I don't know if you want to label them as good or bad, but one, you know, some fertilizers can be really not so good for the environment. So what do you recommend? So yeah.
3: first and foremost, I think the automatic, uh, the automatic for starting point on something like that would be a soil test. Um, and starting with a soil test is most important because just like how um, I think, I like to compare it to, you know, our human health. You don't just walk into a pharmacy and start picking up the, um, vitamins and minerals and stuff and say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna add this to my body, you know? No, you start with a, a wellness check, your doctor says, oh, hey, you know what, you have really great this, but you maybe you need to add XYZ thing, I recommend you take XYZ tablet, you know? Um, so that's a great starting point. It's starting with that soil test, that's your wellness check of your soil. Um, and some soils might be a little too acidic, some might be more basic, you know, so adjusting the acidity of it and then, on, then you know, maybe you have plenty of nitrogen and you don't need to be adding nitrogen or maybe you're, that's your biggest downfall and that's why your plants look brown and drab because you don't have much nitrogen in the soil. So starting from there. Um, and then once you have that soil test and knowing what you want, you know, from the fertilizer or the soil amendment perspective, there's also what we've been talking a lot about recently in our Master Gardener, with our Master Gardeners, is the companion planting. You know, certain plants are well known for um, taking and storing nitrogens or phosphorus or whatever into the soil through its root structure. And so planting this XYZ plant here um, this year with the end goal of being more productive with another plant in that same site. Um, Farmers all across Indiana do this when they're cycling between beans and corn. Beans need more of your nitrogen while your, your, or your corn needs more nitrogen while your beans are uh, nitrogen fixing. So by alternating back and forth, that's how they're kind of helping stimulate that, not having to put as much of an investment into the fertilizer. And you're also not adding that fertilizer into the ecosystem. So...
1: We have a question from Mike. Uh, Mike asks, "How do you treat invasive? Is it celadine plants?" Celadine. Celadine.
3: Ooh, um, I have not treated celadine myself, but um, MC Iris. If anybody's familiar, I know that Ellen J. Cart has been on the radio before with MC Iris, but MC Iris is our Monroe County. Oh shoot, I'm gonna. Yeah, I forget the uh, acronym. Monroe County Invasives Reduce... I forget. I don't know. I don't want to butcher Sarah, look at that.
4: Monroe County Identify and Reduce Invasive Species. There it is. There you go. I follow them on Facebook. Okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, Alan's going to be mad at me now that I've just butchered that. But, oh, it um, looks pretty. We have a picture of it. Yeah. Our radio audience can't see it. Yeah. I I, uh, I honestly do not know right offhand, but uh, reaching out to MCI should be a great, uh, great option for getting the best treatment for, and they have some different... Uh, uh, information publications on their website. Also, they, uh, uh, I encourage said listener to reach out to the extension office. I have some different uh, handouts and research-based um, um, information on what is the best treatment option for cellulite. I that, apologize, I don't know that that's one. That's M C hyphen iris,
1: right? Correct, to, yeah. like the mm-hmm. flower. I R I S. Yeah.
4: yeah, we used to call that buttercups when I was little.
1: Oh. Oh, I've never Those heard pictures?
4: Of yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. We thought it was pretty when we were little. <laughs>
1: Here's another question that's come in from Jim. It's actually four questions, uh, but I'm going to start with – this. no, it's actually a, a statement and three questions. My boxwoods are stressed. That's the <laughs> statement. What could be the cause? What can be done about it? And what should I replace them with?
2: I think the first thing w- to, to look at is the fact that, that we had a very dry, dry summer last summer and just by them being dry going into the fall season probably has put them under immense stress.
3: Well, and I uh, and I would even take that back a little further to if you if ever people recall last Christmas, um, Christmas of 22, we had that uh, that real cold uh, two, three days where we ne- we didn't get above I think, zero degrees for over 48 hours or something like that, you know, with boxwoods having that uh, continuous greening, they are, they're really pulling a lot of water. And when all the water in the climate and atmosphere is frozen, they're, they're stuck. Um, So for three days there, they, in December, they were highly stressed then we go into the spring where we got a flush of water, but then last late spring, early summer, through the summer, we went into drought conditions again. So you had like a one-two punch there on boxwoods being stressed. There's also a thing called boxwood blight, and then there's other blights that are not the boxwood blight, but occur on boxwoods. And we have a few of those uh, blights. I don't know their official names, but they're blights that occur on boxwoods, not boxwood blight. <laughs> it's uh, it, but uh, we've there's been a couple of those that have tested positive in, in around Bloomington area um, for not the boxwood blight but blights that occur on boxwood and uh, so you have a plant that is already very stressed from its just conditions just growing conditions so the winter and the summer adding in blight conditions and throughout countywide we're experiencing a lot of that so
4: I'm so glad Jim asked this question because at first I thought it was my boxwoods because we live out in the in the country and the only thing the deer won't eat are boxwoods. So we have a whole lot of them. And so now it looks ridiculous because they all look like they're dying. Um, so I've been pleased to see that it's throughout town. But then if you have one that is particularly bad, I mean, to Jim's question, should you get rid of it or are they going to come out of this?
1: Is there something you can do to help them yeah. be less stressed?
3: Um, it kind of depends on how dedicated you are to that particular shrub. I had a I had a client interaction last uh, fall where she was she loved these shrub uh, these uh, this line of hedge because her late husband had planted them and she wanted nothing but to save them, and I told her that maybe with some good intensive pruning, and intensive maintenance that you know nothing is ever guaranteed you know, but that she might have a better chance. But uh, if you're like, I don't want it to look rough for the next year or two, and you, especially if it's a younger planting and it's not like an absolute key feature of your yard, I've kind of been hedging towards more the replacement route. Really? So, um, it's it's all depends on also how how stressed does the plant look. You know, is it just a little bit of brown spotting here and there that you can prune that out, get rid of the the stuff you're you're pruning out, remove it off site so that you're not you know, harboring the 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 pests um, and you know keep dedicated to that shrub then you know keep it but if you're not absolutely in love with it I I encourage people to replace it you know and partly is because like you said we have boxwoods all around town and we've kind of created in the urban environment a boxwood monoculture in a sense. So it was almost um, bound to happen uh, when you have that much boxwood uh, in, in the area and everybody has one in their yard uh, and the, you have that much more opportunity for once a pest pre- presents itself to run rampant.
2: That's so. a bummer. So I remember a, uh, the, one of the past meetings our master gardeners have a monthly meeting and mm-hmm. we had a little discussion about, well, oh, my box blues are doing really well. Well, mine are really doing poorly. It's like, well, you know what I do? I treat mine, you know, make sure they have no diseases. But before the winter hits, I treat them because they're an evergreen. They are always uh, getting rid of their water. And that, uh, she said, I water them really well. And then I put this, um, some sort of uh, treatment on them that helps them retain their water. It kind of seals the leaves. And she said, mine are beautiful because I've done yeah. that with it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's, but I think first, like Edward's point, um, you need to do some research to see why they're doing that. If there's a disease, the extension office is a great resource for people Mm -hmm. to help them determine if there's a disease on their boxwood, first and foremost.
4: So what can you put in a boxwoods place that the deer are not gonna eat and that are also low maintenance like a boxwood?
3: that is for jim and me yeah. we want to know <laughs> plastic
4: plants <laughs>
2: oh yeah uh, jim and i are very cute. yeah
3: um you know that's that is a question that is asked uh i don't know how many times and especially with that caveat that deer won't eat yes and um I like to add in the comment that deer will eat just about everything, um, and, and some homeowners know this firsthand. They buy just about anything and everything that says deer won't eat it, and oh, yeah. two weeks later it's nipped off at the ground. Um, it's all about just the, den- the population density of the, the herd and how hungry they are, you know. You go to a buffet and it has your absolute favorite food item on the, on the menu, you're going to eat that first and foremost. You might, you know, I don't like raw sushi. But if I go to a sushi bar that's buffet and that's the only option they have and I'm hungry enough, I'm going to eat the raw sushi, you know. <laughs> so um, I kind of argue that there's really not much out there that deer won't eat. Um, Point taken, but, but the, they, yeah. the boxwoods
4: aren't their favorite.
3: <laughs> yeah, but, um, but some of the options that I, I like to suggest for replacing the boxwood is maybe going with some of our native shrubs that can be, be a little more deer-tolerant. Um, so one of our go- one of the good ones that uh, deer still eat, but a little bit more tolerant um, to deer is uh, button bush. Um, some of our native dogwoods, um, shrubs like gray dogwood, silky dogwood, red twig dogwood. Um, I'm trying to think what else.
2: Oh, when, what shrub that they will not eat is the uh, spice bush. Spice bush, they yeah. Do not eat that.
3: No. N- the only thing is that all these that we've na- you've we've mentioned are, deciduous. So they're not going to have that green curb appeal year round. You know, you can't hang the red ribbon on it it come Christmas time and have that nice holly look. So, but that is another option would be hollies. Yeah. So, um, but hollies are definitely a little bit slower growing than some of the ones we've mentioned. So if you're trying to replace it quick and get that, uh, that summer curb appeal, you're going to want to opt for one of those faster-growing ones. Holly's not always the fastest. so.
1: Let me give our contact information for our gardening show today. We have uh, two gardening experts, Edward Ullman from the Purdue Extension, Monroe County, and Dorothy Cole-Kaiser, who is a certified master gardener with the Monroe County Master Gardeners Association. They're answering your questions. If you have them, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. We can't get you on the air today because of some technical difficulties, but our producer will take your questions and send them in to us and we will get you an answer. You can also send your questions yourselves to um, news at or on X, formerly Twitter. You can go to at noon edition, send us your questions there, Sarah. Okay,
4: I have another question. Um, If you have a lot of moss in your yard because it is really shady, can you dig that up and plant grass seed? And if so, what would you recommend?
2: That would be a soil amendment issue. Back to the soil test again, because moss is like a specific uh, type of soil. Um, I would guess it's probably on the basic side. Isn't that what mosses generally
4: go for? What do you mean on the base? Um,
2: yeah. So the pH scale of oh. soil. Yeah, Gotcha. Yeah. So if you wanted to replace some moss, you would have to dig all of that out and admit in the soil after you've done your soil test and then go from there. Um, but you could just embrace mosses. <laughs> <laughs>
3: there's also, um, you know, especially you said it's occurring in like a shady part yeah. of the yard. Um, you know, my, there's also the possibility that that could have been um, – when the yard was first um, structured or when the grass was first planted um, it's not a shade tolerant variety of grass um, so there's a couple of our fescues that uh, can be more shade tolerant and um, you know maybe interceding with uh, with some more shade tolerant grass species so
4: so grass will grow in the shady areas if it you get can the right grow kind. if you get
3: the right you know like all plants it, they vary by um, how much shade it like. So,
4: is the moss more resilient? Is it just going to keep coming back?
3: No, um, it it can be outcompeted pretty easily. It's a very slow growing mm-hmm. plant in in a sense. Um, so, but uh, but yeah, probably some some rehabilitation of the yard with some more shade tolerant grasses can be helpful. But I would encourage the soil testing, and uh, probably might need some amendments, especially if it's in the root zone of the tree. You might have some. Heavy competition from the tree itself, too. Uh, just because
1: I'm, I know probably less than our first questioner, Chris, does about gardening. To do a soil test, you just go, are they, do you do a soil test? You you go to a, a a place that sells soil tests. <laughs> and do one <laughs> how, how do you do a soil test i
4: feel like they're laughing at you
3: i know no, no 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 we're not laughing. They're
1: smiling no at we are not laughing <laughs> literally
3: as we were walking into uh into the building this we were, dorothy and i were having a conversation about soil testing and um how it's not a really that complex of a of an event but also you you do want to be conscientious about how you're doing it um, so you're getting accurate results so um we have, at the Extension Office, we have a soil borer or a soil test sampler that we, we lend out, um, no charge, you know, just sign a couple of papers and then bring it back when you're done. And that can help, but basically it's like a, a large diameter straw that you push down into the soil and then you pull out, it comes full of soil, and then you clean it out and into a paper bag and then uh, you sub- send in your sample. Um, but, uh, but along that line... Um, our good friends over at the Monroe County's uh, Slow Water Conservation Office. They, um, they got some grant money this year and are offering one free soil test Mm -hmm. to all Monroe County residents. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's, if my understanding and um, Martha over there at the office would know best, my understanding it's kind of till the grant money runs out. So, you know, don't <laughs> don't just show up over there and say, "Hey, I want my soil test." <laughs> um, if uh, if that if the funds have already run out, but um, but the it's not the world's hardest problem to go about uh, collecting a soil sample. You can do it with a shovel. Um, the main thing is making sure you pull out that organic material. You know, if it's in your lawn, try to fish out the roots and stuff. And don't you don't need very deep. You know, you want to be thinking about where the plant's growing. You know, that first say that first six inches, probably say void out the first inch or so because you're relying on a lot of heavy thatch and organic material depending on where you're at. Um, But, you know, we're not digging down to a foot. Our plants are not, you know, we're not digging down to four feet. Our plants are not going down to that far. So, Um, and then being cognizant of once you've collected that soil where you're putting it. Don't grab an old tin can out of the shop that's been storing rusty bolts in it your your iron levels are probably going to be really high on that sample. You know, um, I suggest just uh, your paper bag, like a paper bag that you use for a lunch sack, that kind of concept. Um, or if you wanted to, you could stop by soil water office, soil water conservation office early uh, before you s- deposit your sample, and they have the actual designated sampling bags um, that get sent off to a lab. Um, and,
2: and if you don't uh, get into that grant program to get the soil okay. test, they are really p- pretty inexpensive to have them done. And the uh, the office over there, the Soil mm-hmm. and Water Office, can help you. They have several state labs that uh, $10. Mm-hmm. Ten dollars. Ten dollars. Ten dollars.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so ten bucks or free. Yeah depending on
3: and it's yeah. really and we at the uh, extension office we also have great resources to help you interpret your soil test mm-hmm. so you know that's one of the things you get your soil test back and it's like what do all these numbers mean what do I need to do you know we're more than happy to meet with you and, and talk through that soil test and help give recommendations on what we need to do, depending on what we're trying to grow there, so.
1: We, we have a lot of listeners who are outside of Monroe County. Do mm-hmm. most counties have uh, these same kind of
3: resources? Yeah, yep, okay. every 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 county in Indiana, all 92 counties have an extension office, mm-hmm. and um, a good majority of them have an agriculture natural resource extension educator that can help um, understand soil tests and stuff. And is a great resource to reach out, you know, here in Monroe County, our soil water conservation is where we go for our soil testing. But other counties, they run through the extension office or USDA office, or maybe there's a co-op or something. So we're starting with the extension office. I highly suggest there to, and they'll, they'll know exactly what's best for your particular county.
4: I wonder if kids still learn that in school. Did you learn? Oh, I learned it in school, soil te- but I grew up in a rural area. Is that a thing? That they teach that?
3: I'd be surprised. Uh, you know, I think that, like, I learned it in school as well. But Did you? Okay. Because I was on the soul judging team. And, so and was I. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like it kind of depends on what uh, what your involvements are. I don't think it's commonly covered in, like, your biology 101 freshman yeah. year of high school. So. Uh, I, grew, I
1: grew up in a small Indiana community, too, and I went back to the school for a program recently, and they talked about how strong their ag program was. So I was a suspect. Mm-hmm. A lot yeah. of a lot of communities probably are doing do more of that soil
4: Yeah, that was always a, a basic thing that we learned. So anyway.
1: I have another question that's come in. What's the Monroe County Master Gardener Program, and do you have uh, community events for gardeners who are just looking to get started?
2: Oh, do we have a community <laughs> event coming up? We have a garden fair that's coming up at the uh, – April the 13th, Saturday, April the 13th, is our big uh, garden fair event that the Monroe County Master Gardeners have uh, hosted for several years now. Um, At the event, we're going to have so many people, so much information available to anybody uh, at all levels of gardening, um, invasives, Um, Beginners, vendors of our own food brought on by our own master gardeners, and we'll have house plants for sale. And Edward will be giving his uh, wisdom out to (laughs) whoever would like to hear them. Um, Yeah. So and uh, he also Edward also hosts a master gardener program, classes once a year, generally Mm -hmm. speaking, um, to become a certified master gardener.
1: How How do you? What goes into that program to become a certified master gardener? What What do you have to do, Dorothy?
2: I had to take classes this was uh, okay do I, do I go that far back 15 plus years ago is when I took my first round of classes um and then you have to commit to become a Master Gardener you have to commit to doing a certain amount of uh educational work in the mm-hmm. community and volunteer work and then self-education as uh-huh. well mm-hmm. um Ed can probably f- Edward can probably fill in a little bit more yeah. about uh what else is needed for that
3: Yeah. So it it starts with uh, just being involved in class. So the Master Gardener class here in Monroe County, I teach it uh, once a year in the spring, but in other counties, the educator might teach at different times of the year. Um, And then there's always the state level class that uh, is taught via Zoom. Um, But uh, it's, you know, you can find that on Purdue Extension Master Gardener's website. Um, But uh, it starts with the class. It's a 14 week, three hours a week, class covering a bunch of different topics from uh, woody plants to herbaceous plants, uh, vegetable plants, fruit production, lawn care, soils, basic botany, um, invasives, pesticides, um, entomology, a lot of different core topics are covered. and then after, once you've passed the final exam, or once you've finished the class, you take a final exam. Once you've passed the final exam, then you're eligible to be a Master Gardener or volunteer. Um, and then it's kind of structured to the, the, the original intent of Master Gardeners, I guess I should back up to that, was to be like an outreach from extension on the, in the horticultural sciences. So whether, um, you know, Take a little bit of the pressure off of the extension educator himself, and be able to help share that uh, knowledge into the community and its surrounding community, and that's what our master gardeners do a phenomenal job of. Last year, we racked up over 5,000 hours of volunteer time, just in Monroe County alone, from our uh, our troop of about 60 master gardeners in the Monroe County Association. So um, they're they're eager eager beavers for sure. <laughs> um, but um, but and so that volunteer time is is has an education focus to it. It's not just, you know, going and pulling weeds for the neighbor. It's going and teaching the neighbor which ones are the weeds and which ones are the plants you don't pull, you know. And so once you've uh, acquired your your allotted amount of volunteer time, um, then you become a certified master gardener. And then keeping them keeping that uh, branding or keeping that name is just uh, as easy as 12 hours in a year's time of volunteer time and six hours of continuing education. So we have monthly meetings and other opportunities for continuing education. Mm-hmm. But yeah, our, uh, our garden fair is one of our biggest events for in terms of community outreach. Um, like Dorothy said, that's April 13th, and that's at the Switchyard Park. But uh, kind of backtracking a little bit to when we were talking about um, replacement shrubs, I mentioned button bush, and uh, this year that's our giveaway tree, or shrub. Um, and we're giving away, I think, four hundred. There's
2: four hundred this year.
3: Yep, four hundred button bushes. So stop by, and uh, you know you can bring more questions. We have a couple different experts at staff table for your plant info to go. Uh, and we also have a little plant sale booth, mainly all house plants. So, and um, I like to remind people that um, myself, I have to limit my wife to a. Um, a $10 budget on the houseplants, not because <laughs> of, of uh, spending or financial uh, smartness, but because of space. These houseplants are relatively pretty cheap, um, yeah, but that's our little fundraiser for our grant program that we then turn around and give the money we raise to the community in various ways. So, uh, but yeah. So here's a, rel-
1: uh, a, a question that's related. Where and when is the Master Gardeners event going to be held? Well, you just said that. Is there an admission fee?
2: There is no admission fee. We decided to uh, cut the admission fee to open up the event to more people, give them more opportunities to have people come in and experience gardening Mm -hmm. and all the different things that we provide there.
1: Okay.
4: So uh, getting back to when to dig at the beginning of the year, I had read something that said you need to be careful about digging too early about disturbing monarchs.
3: So... Help I me with
4: that, it. and how would I know that there were monarchs?
2: So monarchs do not overwinter in Indiana. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that wouldn't be a thing here?
3: So not. Our, our native pollinators, I wouldn't really lean that, and I, I have to be honest, entomology is probably my, my, my downfall. I'm a, more of a tree plant guy. <laughs> but... Um, but our native pollinators and whether butterflies, bees, whatever, they don't really winter in the soil per se. They, uh, they're they more wintering in the um, the leaf litter, leaf litter and dead plant material. Yeah, dead, plant material. Yeah, dead like. plant material. So once you've gotten up past the, the warming temperatures and your bugs are moving and stuff, you know, as long as you're – Ambient temperatures warm enough, they're going to be moving. They're not a soil temperature. So, if you're to the point where your soil temperatures are warm enough for you to be uh, planting and digging and stuff, you've kind of worked well past the point of being worried about your native pollinator insects and stuff in the the plant material. So,
1: another quick question about the Master Gardener program. Are there fees to take for the program and how much
3: are they?
2: Fees for the
3: class. Yeah. So, yeah, we do have fees for the class, and it kind of varies uh, year to year, but and educator to educator. Um, so, um, certain different educators run their program a little bit cheaper or a little bit more expensive, depending on their site and where they're needing. You know what it's taking, but I would say that it runs on average about two hundred bucks, okay. plus or minus. 20. Um, And then the Master
2: Gardeners themselves have an annual fee.
3: Yeah, to join uh, your local association, it's it's an annual fee, and I think ours is 10, 15. 15? Yeah, 15. 15. Inflation, we had to go up from 10.
1: That, uh, That question was from Barbara. Previous question was from Valerie. We have a question from Thomas. What is the best grow light for growing indoor plants?
2: You know, that might be a good question to ask our, uh, our plant person at our garden fair yeah. coming up <laughs> in spring. <laughs> yeah. So one of our plant
3: experts that's going to be at the garden fair, her yeah. name is Terry, and uh, Terry is one of our houseplant experts. She, She's she, a
2: guru on the plants. Yeah, when it comes plants. to
3: houseplants, yeah. she has over a thousand houseplants in her home herself. Um, and that you know might sound a little crazy, but she is awesome, she is not crazy, she's awesome. <laughs> so, um, anything indoor related, Terry is the expert on that. And I don't know if there's necessarily a best brand or best type, you know, it's just more than anything, making sure you're uh, creating enough light for the space. You know, if you have a little three inch bulb for a garden box that's four foot long, six, six inches wide you're not really providing enough light. So that's more, it's about making sure you have enough light, not necessarily about, you know, what's the best product. So. You're a
1: tree guy, so I have to ask the annual uh, ash tree question. <laughs> you know, I, I was I'm one of those people that had to have a bunch of ash trees cut from my yard. Is it still a big problem in Monroe County?
3: Um, so EAB itself is kind of... <laughs> Um, Emerald ash borer yeah, Emerald Emerald ash borer um, it's kind of run its course already and um, you know does that mean that the insect is now present anymore? No absolutely not you could still find it Um, you can still trap it but it's not as prevalent as it was say you know 8 to 10 years ago where we could find it just about anywhere I mean it did not take too too much looking to find an insect so but uh, it started up in Michigan and spread down south and it's uh, you know there's places in the southern part of the U.S. that uh, work, are where we were six eight years ago, um, and so it's not gone by the wayside. But in terms of the damage, unless you have a tree that was able to sustain itself through and is now dying or due to sustained stress, um, you're kind of we've kind of limited to, to damage. But now we have young trees and doing. Uh, root drench treatments to try to sustain our younger population that was went unscathed. It was kind of noticed that about seven inch diameter trees is about where it was limited. You know, EAB was not doing too much damage with anything smaller than about seven inches. So mm-hmm. we have those younger trees that went unscathed when the first wave, and now they're starting to grow into the size class where they're putting out a larger hormonal signal where they might be attacked more aggressively. Um, and doing treatments to keep those alive. But otherwise, there's not much we can do for the more mature ones that are already gone from the landscape. So,
2: so you're, you're suggesting treatments for the bigger ones. I'm asking because we've got a bunch of those young ones that yeah. have survived the first round.
3: Yeah, um, and it's one of those things, though, that once you start a treatment, you're going to have Take, to stay you know, with the treatment. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, hey, I... I it's kind of like uh, the rock versus wood mulch discussion. You know, yeah, I could put rock down and it's one fee up front. I don't have to rejuvenate. Well, where wood mulch are changing every year, this is very much a, a you-need-to-be-doing-it-every-year-or-every-other-year treatment. So, And it's not a cheap treatment. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have another
1: question. This one's from Nancy. What pesticides or treatments for pests would you recommend for pet owners?
3: This um, is one that I actually get a lot of clients calling the extension office about, and I, um, I kind of turn it around and say, you know, I encourage you to talk to your vet first um, because I don't know what your pet, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a pet specialist, I'm not a veterinarian, so I don't know what your pet can and cannot handle. And but veterinarians do so whether you have a cat, a dog, uh, a horse, whatever they know what it can and can't be susceptible to. And but in the same mark, you know, the when it comes to pesticides, the label's the law, and just like how the label has rules and comments about proper PPE for us to handle, you know, I would say the same goes for any other uh, living mammal or uh, animal. Um, where, you know, just keeping your animal away from said pesticides. Most all pesticides um, that we use are usually only active for a set amount of hours, so keeping your animals away from that. But first and foremost, I would talk to what product you're intending to use. Uh, Talk to your veterinarian about if this is kosher or not. Okay.
4: So I'm curious just about pesticides. Is there an actual do we have enough pe- pesticide inspectors who are going around and, and checking the way pesticides are applied? Just thinking on like larger scale farming and I know that's an issue in some places especially with farm workers being exposed.
3: Yeah, so we have pesticide, you know, it runs through the state chemist office mm-hmm. and they have inspectors um, that are kinda, that's their job. And, but then there's also a reporting um, mechanism through the state chemist office so if you uh, suspect foul play or you suspect something to have been done improperly you know that's where you can go to the state chemist office and submit a report and then they will reach out with follow-up questions or start an investigation depending on how serious the 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 commentary is you know um but yeah there are there are people that that is their job just like how we have you know police officers and you know conservation officers there are people that that's their job as um, you know, pesticide, kind of, the governing body on that. Mm-hmm, you know, so,
1: mm-hmm. Dorothy, I want to ask you, what wh- what, are your plans for gardening this summer?
2: Oh, Ed and I, re- <laughs> Ed, we were just talking about on the way in also. <laughs> um, my daughter's getting married this fall, oh. and... She asked that I provide the flowers for the wedding. So that's my focus for this year <laughs> is to grow all these flowers that she would like for her wedding. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: What's her favorite?
2: Sunflowers. Okay. Oh, that'll yeah, be fun. It will be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Our place is going to look spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going to
4: keep the birds from going after your sunflowers? It's
2: fine. They can have them. I don't care. <laughs> there's, gonna, there's just going to be so many of them, I'm I'm guessing. I have like... Six different types of sunflowers. <laughs> it's going to be a, a hilltop full of sunflowers. So you can share a few with the birds. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
4: <laughs> We're supposed to be getting some cicadas.
3: Yeah. What's yeah? I'll I'm sorry I an, had to ask. Give us an update. <laughs> okay. This is I've, another one that I've received a lot of questions <laughs> about this year. And um, this is kind of a situation where it was um, – uh, a lack of proper marketing or um, lack of proper news, uh, news research. So not calling out anybody that's a news <laughs> anchor, but <laughs> you know. but so there are two broods of cicadas that are occurring. Brood X or brood ten, right? Was one. No, of them. that was that, that was, was the, was the brood that we had back yeah, in 2021. Okay, I remember yeah, that one? Yeah. It's uh oh my gosh, the numbers, I can't remember the numbers because they're, they're, they're numbered by broods, but that does not, inc- it, it, the number that the brood is, is not the same number as the frequency. So I believe it's like brood 13 that occurs on a 19-year cycle and brood like 16. I don't remember the numbers. But anyhow, there are two broods that are coming out at the same time in Illinois. And um, there's a large band of where these two broods overlap. And so central Illinois is gonna have kind of similar to what we experienced in 2021, where it's gonna be an overabundance of cicadas. But that, those, both of those broods come over to a little bit of um, the Indiana line, kind of along the river there, say, you know, uh, Vigo County, Vermilion County, maybe a little bit of, um, oh, what's, is that Clay County? That's out past Greene County on the state line. Mm-hmm. You know, a little mm-hmm. bit of the state line there, but not gonna be hitting central Indiana like it is central Illinois. In our part of Indiana, Bloomington, and especially out towards Columbus, anything south of Indy, you know, that area, we have our annual cicada that we see every year, and that's really the only cicada we're gonna be seeing. So we're still gonna see some cicadas. It's not. I'm not saying that, oh, we're not seeing cicadas, but we are not gonna be anywhere near, far from the summer of 2021 when we had cicadas out the wazoo, so. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> if you're in, <laughs> in Illinois and it
4: looks like Missouri. Yes.
3: Yeah, a little bit of Missouri, but then the, you're gonna bi- get the, hit the heavy hard. the heavy overlap of the two broods is in central Illinois, so. Yeah. Okay. So if there's yeah. listeners from central Illinois, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> so were you
4: on the last cicada show we did? When someone, when we did the cicada show before uh, brood 10 or whatever, brood, someone brood, said yeah. they're gonna be so bad, it's gonna look like the ground was moving. So I was pretty excited. Because that's a lot of cicadas, and but I didn't see the like I didn't see that
3: many. It kind of depended on where you were, parts of the state. Um, because so I, I was not on that show, but um, that uh, that spring I planted a lot of trees. Um, I was working with for, with the state division of forestry, and we probably put close to fifty thousand trees in the ground. And some of our tree plantings the following year looked terrible hmm. because of all the cicada damage other tree plantings looked and um, so it all depended on where you were you know there were some campgrounds that were on various public parks and stuff that were reporting that ground moving look Mm -hmm. and uh, you know where the tree stem would just be covered you could just pick them off one at a time and other places where you'd see maybe a dozen or two on a tree stem so
1: Mm -hmm. only got one minute to go I Edward I want to give you an opportunity to just talk about the uh, forestry in Indiana. What's the tree canopy like in the state? Is it holding firm? Is it growing better? Are we starting to dwindle a little bit? No,
3: we're still very much in the upward direction. So, you know, we we hit our all-time low, say, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, 1920s in there, uh, where we really started aggressively reforesting. And we, every year, we are still in the growing direction. Um, now, sadly, we are aging out to being an overmature mature canopy, um, and we don't, or what we're really missing is the young forest component. And uh, so that's where some proper harvesting techniques, shelterwood harvest, and stuff like that can encourage that young forest habitat and create, getting that mosaic back on the landscape. But otherwise, no, we're still in the upward direction. Okay,
1: thank you for that. We are out of time. I want to thank Edward Ullman and Dorothy Cole Kaiser for being here and being our gardening experts today. Uh, For my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, she's another gardening expert, (laughs) engineer Mike Pashkash, and our producer Nathan Moore, I'm Bob Zaltzberg.
0: Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, security solutions, and voice in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, empowering a community and government partners by bringing together nonprofits, businesses, and philanthropists on initiatives to gain access to healthcare resources. Learn more at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, Offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.